Today we're going to transition to another phase of our study of Messiah and the Messianic era. We're going to discuss some more elements of Messiah and its arrival and how potentially that may unfold. Some of the ideas will complement what we have already discussed, but hopefully it will present a richer and more complete picture of Messiah to the best of our abilities. Last time we spoke about the variability of Messiah. Messiah, we think of it as just this one thing, but the sources are clear that in a great many ways, the type of Messiah that we end up with is going to be what we earn, what we are deserving to get. And therefore, in many areas, the type of Messiah that we're going to get, it depends on us. So, for example, the canonical example of that is what the Talmud says. The verse says, In its time, I will expedite it. In its time means in its time. There's a time, and that's when Messiah will come. I will expedite it. That tells us that it will come before the time. So the Talmud tells us, if we are meritorious, we'll get it early. If we are not meritorious, we'll get it late. And we delineated the many different areas that the type of Messiah that we earn, the many different areas in which that variability is manifested. So we spoke about the temple, for example. The temple is going to get built. That is a necessary element of Messiah and the Messianic era and the Messianic transformation. As we know, the times of Messiah, that's not Olam Abba. That's not the world after the resurrection. That is the world in which we can fulfill all of Torah. And of course, many laws of the Torah are contingent upon the temple. In fact, the majority of mitzvos we cannot fulfill today. So having a temple is a necessary element of the Messianic era, but how it will get built, that is variable. Will it be built by human labor or will it descend from heaven via a divine miracle? Well, it's up to us. What's Messiah like? It's going to be a surprise, the Talmud tells us. But surprises come in all different ways. It can come as a surprise akin to the surprise of finding a hidden treasure. It can also come as a surprise of a less pleasant variety, like being stunned by a surprising scorpion. We talked about many other ways in which Messiah is variable. Since our last recording, I found sources for other areas of variability. The Talmud tells us that before Messiah comes, Elijah comes, Elijah the prophet, according to our sources, it's actually the same person as Pinchas, that's a separate discussion, Elijah will come and will forecast, will present a tiding that Messiah is on its way. Well, the sources tell us that too is variable. If we are meritorious, then Elijah will come and forecast the imminent arrival of Messiah. If we are not meritorious, then we will not have the tiding of Elijah. Moreover, I found another source that tells us that 
there is a possibility that Messiah will come and the Jews won't even know it. And we'll have to be informed by the nations of the world. If we're not meritorious, it'll come through some sort of way, through some sort of approach in which we won't even be aware of it. And we'll have to be informed by the Gentiles. Alternatively, we can inform the Gentiles. That is what the sources indicate. And of course, this should reinforce the disclaimer that we have mentioned many times, and that is that we know and we fully confess that what will actually happen when Messiah comes, it's beyond our capacity of knowing ahead of time. Yes, the prophets were able to see each one according to their degree of revelation. But whatever we are told, whatever is conveyed to us, it's deliberately garbled. The messages and the teachings and the prophecies about Messiah are designed to not be clear and to be very easily misinterpreted. So we acknowledge, and we have this disclaimer, and I'm trying to say it again and again so that way everyone knows this. We don't have clarity in this subject. What we have are hints, are allusions, are indications, are ambiguous statements. And it's impossible for us to say with any certainty what Messiah will be, how it will come, what the era of Messiah will look like, we cannot say with any certainty. That said, our approach is to try to understand it as best as we can, to lay out the subject, to present the sources, and to try to understand them as our sages have interpreted them and as we best can uh, can present them. And today we're going to introduce some more elements on the arrival of Messiah, and again with the caveat that we don't know exactly what will happen until it happens, hopefully that will be soon, speedily in our days. Now I want to introduce today's subject with an apparent contradiction. The sources seem to differ as to whether Messiah will come instantly or it is it some is it something that occurs gradually. Messiah and the Messianic era and all that that entails. Is that the result of a, of a series of sequential, progressive, cumulative steps that collectively amount to Messiah? Or is Messiah something which is instantaneous? Does it happen slowly and progressively? Or all at once? Is it instantaneous? Is it the byproduct of a series of incremental steps? And the sources seem to differ. We see sources in both directions. Some of the sources we've already seen in the past. The sources tell us that Messiah happens suddenly. It's fast. It's without warning. At the very end of the prophets, we read chapter 3 of Malachi. It says that suddenly it will happen. This master, this Messiah that we are waiting for, it'll happen out of the blue. We quoted the Talmud already. The Talmud tells us that where's Messiah? Well, he is the leper sitting 
on the outskirts of Rome, and he's bandaging and unbandaging his bandages slowly. And the reason why is because he could be summoned to Jerusalem any moment. And he doesn't want to remove all the bandages and then reapply the ointment and then put the bandages back on because then there's going to be a lag. You have to be ready to go for your Messiah at a moment's notice. And he tells the great rabbi, when are you coming? I'm coming today. If you repent, uh, pending repentance, provided that there is repentance, today is the day the Messiah will come. In our prayers, we say that we believe that Messiah can come every day without forewarning, out of the blue, instantaneously. We mentioned this already. Messiah will come suddenly. Well, is that good or bad? Depends. If we are meritorious, it's like finding a treasure. If we are not meritorious, it's like getting stung, bitten by a scorpion. But everyone agrees that it is sudden. And the story of Joseph, our sages tell us, it serves as a model for what redemption looks like. So, of course, we know the story of of Joseph. He's the son of Jacob. And when he is a teenager, he has conflict with his brothers. He's 17, and he has dreams, and the dreams present him as a ruler, as a, as a monarch, as a king over his brothers. In one dream, they're bundling bundles of, of wheat, him and his brothers, and all their bundles bow before his bundle. In a second dream, he tells his brothers that the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowed before him. And the brothers are not happy with this. And they're envious of him. And they hate him. And they plot to kill him. And they ultimately settle to sell him as a slave. And he goes down to Egypt. And he's bought by Potiphar. And he is seduced, propositioned by Mrs. Potiphar. And then... She frames him for a crime he did not commit, and he is imprisoned. And he's there languishing in the bowels of this Egyptian prison for years and years. And then he gets some cellmates, two of Pharaoh's ministers. And they each have dreams, and Joseph skillfully interprets the dreams. And he tells the baker, the unfortunate news that he's going to be beheaded in three days. And he tells the butler the joyous news that he's going to be restored to his post in three days on Pharaoh's birthday. And then he requests from the butler to invoke his case before Pharaoh. And indeed, on Pharaoh's birthday, he restored the butler to his post. He decapitated the baker, but the butler promptly forgot about Joseph and did not remember him until two years later. Two years later, by the way, the Midrash tells us that the reason why Joseph was forced to be imprisoned for two more years is because he had too much reliance on the butler. Two years later, Pharaoh has a series of unsettling dreams. He sees the seven fat, robust, plump cows being consumed by the the, the seven skinny, frail, emaciated cows. 
And then he has the, 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 the seven healthy ears of, of, of wheat are consumed by the, the windswept ears of wheat. And he wakes up and none of his advisors can interpret the dream in a way that Pharaoh is comfortable with. And the butler remembers Joseph. And Joseph is commissioned to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And he tells him, of course, that there's going to be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine, and gives very skillful advice as to what to do. And instantly, he is appointed viceroy of Egypt. He is bedecked in the garb of royalty, and he is paraded throughout the land. That's the story that we read in the book of Genesis. But in chapter 41, verse four, four, but in chapter 41, verse 14, we read the following. Pharaoh summoned Joseph, and he called him, and they rushed him out of the pit, and they shaved him, and they swapped his garments, and they brought him before Pharaoh. And the commentaries tell us, this story of Joseph going from the absolute pits, quite literally, to becoming the king in one day, this is symbolic, this is emblematic of redemption in general. All redemption follows this pattern. It's instantaneously. The Egyptian exodus, they were banished from the land. There wasn't even enough time for the dough to rise. And in the future, when Messiah comes, it's going to happen suddenly, very quickly. Joseph, he was supposed to be in exile. There was a decree that he remains in prison for two more years for his over-reliance on the butler. But once the time came, he was not allowed to remain for even a second beyond what was decreed in heaven. There is an old axiom, Yeshua Hashem, Teheraf Ayin. The salvation of God is like the blink of an eye. The blink of an eye happens so fast, it doesn't even interrupt your field of vision. Like that. The snap of the finger, blink of the eye, and everything changes. So again, these are sources that really show reputable sources from all different parts of our literature that show that redemption and Messiah happens very fast. You know, Joseph wakes up in the morning and he is in prison and he's been there for more than a decade. And that night, he's viceroy of Egypt. There's this instant ascent to glory and this is emblematic of all redemptions, Messiah included. Now, by contrast, we see that there are other sources that talk about Messiah as a gradual process, like a staggered revelation, successive steps, gradually revealing the Messianic era. The Talmud tells us, this is something that we'll have to further study as well, this world is a 6,000-year enterprise. 2,000 years of tohu, of emptiness. 
2,000 years of Torah. And the final epoch of 2,000 years is 2,000 years of Messiah. Messiah, it's not just this one isolated thing. It's a 2,000-year process. And the final 2,000 years, well, that's the time of Messiah. And this is like what we quoted earlier from Ramchal. We're always getting closer to Messiah. And regardless of what decisions we make, good decisions or bad decisions, every decision is bringing us closer to Messiah. And we mentioned this very briefly, but the idea of saras, the, the physical manifestation of a spiritual malady, that, the Talmud tells us, that is symbolic of the arrival of Messiah. Messiah will come in a generation that's entirely wicked. How so? Quotes the Talmud. It's akin to a leper, to a person who has saras, that's completely covered in white. If they're completely covered in white, if they're completely covered in saras, then quite counterintuitively, they are pure. Every decision that we make either cleanses us from tzaras, so to speak, or makes us, God forbid, have more tzaras, have more spiritual impurity. But regardless, either path leads towards purity. Either we're cleansing ourselves or we're getting even more impure, but that direction also leads towards purity because when there's total impurity, well, that results in purity. So again, this is the idea of everything is always leading. Everything we're doing is leading towards Messiah. Now, I will note, this is a little bit in the weeds. If you look at Rashi's commentary to the Talmud, when the Talmud says that there's 2,000 years of Messiah, Rashi does not interpret it the way we just did, that it's a 2,000-year process. Rather, that this 2,000 years are ripe for Messiah. And it could come any time during that 2,000 years. So Rashi seems to avoid this interpretation by saying that, well, these 2,000 years, it's not just a 2,000-year process of the revelation of Messiah. Rather, it is a time in which Messiah can potentially come. But regardless, there are other sources that talk about Messiah as an ongoing process. So, for example, there's a, a beautiful teaching in the Midrash. It's talking about the aforementioned episode of the sale of Joseph and the apparent breakdown of this family. Because Joseph is sold, and then Reuben is mourning, and Judah is demoted, and, and Jacob is completely inconsolable. This, this, this nuclear family is just breaking up. And the Midrash tells us that what is God doing? God is preparing the light of Messiah. Which is why, you know, sandwiched between the episodes of Joseph, you read the story of Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar, this very scandalous union that resulted in the birth of twins, which, as we know, are the forbearers of David, Solomon, and subsequently Messiah. So there's this, again, beautiful midrash that talks about how everyone's distracted, everyone's involved in their own little world, 
Joseph's been sold and Judah's been demoted and Jacob is inconsolable. And when no one's looking, everyone's focusing on other things. God is building Messiah. This idea, again, seems to fit in really nicely with this idea that Messiah is the process of Messiah and the origin story of Messiah. It's all happening inexorably behind the scenes for a very long time. I will note, and I think we'll probably talk about this in the future, you know, Messiah is a very uh, checkered pedigree. The whole story of Lot in the aftermath of the overturning of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot spends some scandalous nights with his daughters, also resulting in the birth of two sons, including uh, Moab, which we discover later on that too has to do with the pedigree of Messiah because Ruth, the great-grandmother of David, is a descendant of the family of Moab. So the fact that there are scandals amongst the ancestry of Messiah, David and Bathsheba, of course, is one of them as well, that is not a coincidence. We will learn, please God. But again, this idea that Messiah is not just something that just shows up out of nowhere. It's been in the, in the works. It's been percolating behind the scenes for a long time and slowly behind the scenes getting ready to be revealed. That is well founded in the sources. Now there's another incredible Talmud to this effect. It talks about the exile. And how the exile itself wasn't instantaneous. It was also staggered. It was also, you know, destruction and the, and the exile was a gradual process where every stage of demotion followed by, it was followed by another stage and so on. The Talmud book of Rosh Hashanah, page 31a, it tells us that the Shekhinah, the divine presence, it departed over the course of 10 stages. It was situated right on top of the ark, and then it went to one of the cherubs. So it kind of left a little bit. And then it went to the other cherub, and then it went to the threshold of the sanctuary, and then it went to the courtyard, and it's slowly inching its way back to heaven, so to speak. And then it went to the altar, and then it went to the roof of the temple, and then it went to the walls of the city, and then I went to the city itself, and then I went to the mountain. This is Mount Olives. And slowly, it's leaving. Of course, the nation has the option to summon it back with repentance, but they choose not to. It leaves Jerusalem. It goes to the wilderness. It goes to the desert. And finally, it goes up to heaven. And that is the final stage of exile. As God, so to speak, withdraws himself from Jerusalem, well, then we're vulnerable and we can be destroyed and the, the temple of wood and stones can be burnt to the ground. Says the Talmud, this corresponds to what happened to the Sanhedrin. As we know, the Sanhedrin is the high court, the Supreme Court of our nation. And they too underwent 10 successive stages of exile. They were in the marble chamber, in the temple, and then they left to a different neighborhood in Jerusalem, closer to the temple, and then they left to Jerusalem, and then to Yavna, and then to Usha, 
and then back to Yavne, and then back to Usha, and then to Shvaram, and then to Beit Shvarim, and then to Tzipori. And finally, they settled in Tiberias, and from there, they disbanded. And very interestingly, the Talmud tells us that when the Sanhedrin is reconstituted, and when the redemption is going to happen, it's going to start at the point of departure. It's going to start where it left off in Tiberias, which seems to imply the Talmud here that there's this whole process, 10 stages, a sequence of events that slowly and gradually resulted in the exile. And it's going to be undone in reverse order. It's going to start from Tiberias and then go back, eventually making its way back to the marble chamber in Jerusalem, in the temple. Now, that's implied from the Talmud. It's explicit elsewhere in the Talmud. This is in the Jerusalem Talmud. At the very beginning, one one of Brachos, it tells us that Messiah is akin to sunrise. It tells a story. Two of the sages were walking at night in this valley, the Arbel Valley, and they saw the first rays of sunrise. And one of them commented to the other, this is exactly like the redemption of Israel. It starts off and there's just one small ray of light. And progressively, the brightness increases and gets stronger and stronger and so on. So this is explicitly in the Talmud that the redemption is not just overnight, doesn't, doesn't go from pitch black to bright light. It's like sunrise. It takes a long time, slowly and progressively, inching its way towards noon, towards the full brilliance of the sun. Now, this pattern follows other exiles and redemptions. You know, in Egypt, they were there for 400 years. When does that start? It starts with the birth of Isaac. The birth of Isaac in a foreign land, that's already a small little dot of servitude. And then it progresses from there onward. And the actual intense servitude in Egypt was only the final 86 years of the tenure of the Jews in Egypt. Progressively, it got worse. And that's why there's such uncertainty as to when exactly the, ser- the servitude started and when, when, it, when it ended. We know that the servitude also ended a year before the actual exodus. We have these 10 plagues that are slowly disentangling the Jews from their Egyptian masters. And that's part of this progressive sequence of events that lead to the actual exodus. So again, this is just demonstrating the idea that the Messiah and redemption in general, it's a slow, gradual process comprised of incremental steps. In our prayers... We attest to this when we talk about the sprouting of redemption. Nothing sprouts instantly. It starts slow and it germinates and it peaks its way through the surface to the, to, to above ground 
and it takes a long time before it reaches its full glory. Jacob and Esav, the two brothers. The final battle, we'll talk more about this, please, God, is Jacob against Esav. The verses tell us Messiah will come and square off against Esav on Mount Seir. And when they reunited after Jacob had spent 20 years with Laban, initially Esav wanted to kill Jacob, and then he says, okay, let's live together. And Jacob says, I'll get to you eventually. Let me go slowly. Eventually, I will come back and revisit you in Mount Seir. Now, he never visits Mount Seir. But Rashi there tells us, this is an idea that hopefully will develop further. The final conquest of Messiah, the final battle, is Jacob versus Asaph. Jacob will maintain his word he will get to Asaph eventually. It'll happen slowly. It'll happen at his own pace, but eventually we'll get there. And this is like a multi-thousand-year journey where Jacob is slowly inching his way, very gradually, at his pace, towards this final showdown against Asaph. So This is a fascinating contradiction. The sources stress the instantaneous nature of the Messianic revelation. You're not paying attention. It's sudden. It's out of the blue. But there's also this emphasis on the slow, gradual, methodical, 2,000-year-long sprouting of Messiah with apparently plenty of forewarning. I think this is a, a highly relevant subject for us to ponder a bit further if we're going to understand Messiah as best as we can, and also to have maybe a sense of what we have to look forward to. So to answer this question, I think, you know, our instinct tells us, well, Messiah is very variable. If we're meritorious, well, it'll happen early. If it's the result of us not being meritorious, well, then it'll happen late, late in its time. Maybe if we're meritorious, it'll happen gradually. And if we're not meritorious, or maybe the opposite. The opposite. If we are meritorious, it'll happen instantly. We won't have to wait through this whole labor and delivery process of Messiah. And if we're not deserving, well, then we'll have to suffer, so to speak, the birth pains of Messiah. And that analogy, by the way, is what our sages, in fact, describe Messiah too. It's like this very long process that I've been reliably told is quite uncomfortable. So maybe that is the answer to this apparent contradiction. Well, it can happen in more than one way. But I want to suggest another idea. This is, I think, a a deeper point. Perhaps these two approaches that we see can coexist simultaneously. Messiah can be both a slow, gradual process, a sequence of events, and it could be an instantaneous batting of the eye. The salvation of God is like the blinking of an eye. And let's go back to Joseph. Joseph had a dream, and the Torah does not tell us any dream that's not prophetic. There are 
more than 10 dreams featured in Genesis, every one of them is prophetic. Joseph has two dreams that he is going to become a king. And we know that he, he became a king. And when, how old was he when that happened? The verse tells us explicitly he was 17 years old. How old was Joseph when he was coronated? The Torah tells us that as well. He was 30. So how long did it take from when Joseph had the dream that he's going to be king until it was actualized? There was a 13-year lag. Is that right? Simple math. So there were 13 years that separated the implementation of this dream from the actual dream. That's what we would think. But Joseph himself tells us otherwise. Pharaoh also had two prophetic dreams. Seven cows, seven stalks. And Joseph interprets the dreams. And he tells him, well, there's only seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine, the worst famine that has ever been visited upon Egypt. And then he tells him why Pharaoh had two dreams. One dream would be sufficient. You know, if you just had the seven cows, the, the seven silly cows, and the seven robust cows, that would be enough. Why do you have to have two dreams? Why were the prophetic dreams doubled? Says Joseph, that too is part of the prophecy. That indicates that the timing of this dream is immediate. The doubling of the dreams indicate that the dreams are going to be fulfilled, implemented right away. And therefore, you gotta get, gotta get to work. You have seven years to prepare for the seven years of famine. Joseph is telling us a rule of prophetic dreams. If you have two of them, that is an indication of the timing of those prophetic dreams. The interpretation of the dreams will commence immediately. And here's the question. Joseph also had two dreams. The brothers' bundles bowed before his bundle. The sun, the moon, the eleven stars bowed to him. So according to this rule that Joseph himself tells us, there should be no lag between when those dreams happened and when they were implemented. How can Joseph tell us this rule about the doubling of the dreams? Oh, that tells us it's happening immediately. When he himself had two different dreams and it took 13 years for them to happen. I think we can prove conclusively that Joseph is revealing to us that actually the dreams were implemented right away. Joseph became a king right away. It's just that he had to be trained 
He had to be prepared. He had to undergo some experiences. Everything that happened between the dreams and the implementation of the dreams was all necessary for those dreams to happen. And therefore, it was instantaneous, even though it took 13 years. Everything had to be put in place for it to be actualized. But the process was underway. The dreams were implemented immediately. Us as outsiders looking at Joseph, we say, well, he's not a king, he's not a king, he's not a king, he's not a king. It goes from zero to a thousand in one day. That's what we would say. Joseph is showing us a different idea. It wasn't 13 years of nothing and then overnight coronation. It happened right away, but it was a process that took 13 years. And then it was revealed to us instantly, like the batting of an eye. So maybe that's what Messiah is like as well. It is a series of events. It is a gradual process. It is something that takes many, many years, decades, centuries, and millennia. (laughs) Already in the times of Joseph himself, God is preparing the light of Messiah. The world is changing. The nation is changing. But all those changes are happening beneath the surface, and they're totally imperceptible to us. If we saw Joseph six years after his dreams, it wouldn't look to us that he's halfway towards his coronation. But he was. Messiah, it's happening all the time. But it's invisible to us. In the hearts of people, there's this disenchantment with everything else. Slowly, all the factors that are inhibiting Messiah are being eliminated one after another. And like Ramchal tells us, every decision, both good and bad, brings us closer. We're inching closer, slowly, progressively, beneath the surface. Every second, every decision, every moment is inching us closer. But like Joseph, there's going to be a moment, like the batting of an eye, like a blink of an eye, where it will come to full expression and For the untrained eye, it will seem like it's just overnight, it's instantaneous. But we know it was percolating beneath the surface for millennia. We spoke about an example, perhaps, of this. The fall of the Soviet Union wasn't last time, it was the time before last time. We spoke of that. My grandfather, a blessed memory, used to present that as an analogy of the elimination of evil. So I wasn't uh, very old when the Soviet Union collapsed. I don't remember it. But people who do describe it as being such a shock. How did it happen so fast? But was it a shock? Or was it in play for 70, 80 years? I think it was both. There was rotting. There was internal decay and breakdown in motion for a very long time. And it only came out to the surface in full expression overnight. You know, people 
who in the 60s and the 70s, even the 80s, they thought that, you know, there's a bipolar world, there's, you know, two superpowers and, you know, how are things going to shake out and containment, etc., etc. It turns out it was just a paper tiger. No one knew it. It happened beneath the surface. And there's an argument to be made that on one dimension it was instantaneous, but really it was both. And this is a fascinating idea. Messiah, perhaps, is, is both a slow and gradual and incremental process and overnight, out of the blue, completely unanticipated, instantaneous transformation. Now, what does this look like? What are these gradual steps? What are these milestones, if you will, that comprise the messianic process and unfolding? Is there any way that we can talk about the general contours of these transformations, these series of transformations of Messiah? So I want to share another idea about the sequencing of Messiah. Of course, we know that there are various elements of what Messiah is and what the Messianic era is all about. But the sources indicate that these things, these elements, are interlinked. Not only that, each successive stage is the result of the preceding one, and it precipitates the ensuing one. Now, again, I want to stress for the third time, this is another area where we have to remember that how things actually will happen, it's something that we don't know. But the source that I'm going to share with you is 100% reliable because it comes from the Talmud. Now, I found it very interesting that there's almost no commentaries on this particular Talmud. And the consequences of the Talmud are very earth-shaking to me. It's what it seems like. But mysteriously, the commentaries just don't emphasize that. And I don't know why. Or maybe I do know why. But if you read this Talmud in the book of Megillah on page 17b, it outlines a step-by-step process of Messiah and how it all can unfold. I think it's interesting for us if we want to understand more about Messiah, of course, with all the caveats and disclaimers in place, it's interesting to look at this and just see this as potentially a way that it can all unfold. Now, the Talmud is talking about something completely different, apparently. It's talking about prayers and the Amidah prayer, the Shemona Esrei, the 18 benedictions that we say three times a day. And it's talking about the history of it and the order. Well, why is it in this particular order? The Talmud tells us that this order was codified by the men of the Great Assembly. This is a body, a council, that convened at the beginning of the Second Commonwealth. And this group included several prophets. And it goes through blessing by blessing why we have a certain blessing and why it's positioned in its location 
in the Amidah. So why do we say the first blessing of the forefathers and the next one of Gvuros, of the might of God, and then Kedusha, the holiness, and then insight, and why that comes after Kedusha, and why repentance comes after insight, and then it tells us the seventh blessing. Why do we have the seventh blessing? That's the one about redemption. So interestingly, it tells us, because redemption is connected to seven. Seven is the seventh year, which is Shemitah. And when will the redemption happen? It will happen on the seventh year. And therefore, it's fitting that the seventh blessing about redemption be particularly there because it's going to happen on the seventh year of the Shemitah cycle. And Tom says, wait a minute, will Messiah come on, on, on Shemitah? I thought it's going to come on the eighth year. In the sixth year of the Shemitah cycle, there will be voices, noises, proclamations, sounds. In the seventh year, there will be wars. And in the eighth year, the son of David will arrive. So is it the seventh year? And therefore, it should be the seventh blessing? Maybe it should be the eighth blessing. Because it's going to happen in the eighth year. Says the Talmud, no. Those wars are not independent of Messiah. They're going to lead to Messiah. That's the beginning of the re- of the redemption. And therefore, it's fitting to make the blessing about redemption the seventh blessing. Well, then there's the eighth blessing. That's the one about healing. And the reason why the healing blessing is the eighth, because the the baby that gets a circumcision on the eighth day needs a healing. Okay. What about the ninth blessing that corresponds to the uh, the blessing on grain and produce? Well, that corresponds to the ninth psalm, and therefore it makes sense to make a ninth. Okay, that's how it starts off. The first nine blessings. It lays it out why the order was uh, thus uh, uh, appropriate appropriately presented by the men of the Great Assembly. Now, the next blessings, they all deal with various elements of Messiah. And the Talmud tells us that the reason why we have these blessings in this particular order is because this order will match the order of Messiah. The tenth blessing for the ingathering of the exiles why does that come after the ninth blessing of bountiful produce? What's the connection between bountiful crops in the land of Israel to the ingathering of exiles to the land of Israel? Says the Talmud, there's going to be a miracle. A land that was barren and desolate and empty, it will bloom and the reason why it will bloom, it's, the, it's to accommodate the people that are going to be coming back. And therefore, it makes sense. First, the land will bloom. And then you have the tenth blessing about the ingathering of the exiles. The ingathering of the exiles will follow the blooming of the land. Now, I will tell you, parenthetically, the Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin tells us, that the clearest evidence of redemption is the miracle of the blooming of the land of Israel. The land that was barren, 
that was desolate, that was uninhabited, that was uninhabitable, it's going to come back to life. And that, says the Talmud, is the greatest and clearest and most revealed evidence of redemption, which is an amazing thing to read, especially today. And then it tells us that after the line will bloom, and then the ingathering of exiles will happen, following that, you have the restoration of the judges. And that's why the next blessing follows. We know that the Sanhedrin is a critical element of Jewish life and society. And it was disbanded. And it was disbanded in the city of Tiberias, like we mentioned. And it has to be reconstituted. And it's not so simple because the Sanhedrin demands that the members of the Sanhedrin have smicha. And smicha, it's hard to revive. There are hard to fulfill conditions for its revival. But the Talmud tells us that the process goes like this. Land will bloom, exiles will be ingathered, and then the Sanhedrin will be reconstituted and they can mete out judgment to the wicked. And following that, we have the next blessing, the elimination of the heretics. And following that, we have the next blessing, the elevation of the stature of the righteous and the righteous converts. And then we have the next blessing. When's that? Where is that going to happen? Where are the stature of the righteous going to be elevated in Jerusalem? And that is the next blessing. Now, the rebuilding of Jerusalem sounds like the rebuilding of the temple. The restoration, so to speak, of our relationship with God. And this is part of the whole messianic transformation. Apparently, at least according to the Talmud, that happens in this part of the sequence. And that will lead to the next blessing, the arrival of David. Once Jerusalem is rebuilt, Messiah is going to come. And that leads to the next blessing of prayer. True prayer can be reinstituted after David is here. And following that, you have the service in the temple. And following that, you have the ability to properly thank God. This is an amazing Talmud. The Talmud tells us that the order of the Amidah prayer, the reason, at least part of it, the the part that's relevant to Messiah, it follows the sequencing of the messianic transformation. One leads to the next, which leads to the next. As an aside, it's also been suggested that the end of Ezekiel, which also addresses the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple, it's also modeled after this order, this sequencing. So this is very interesting. We have many different dimensions of redemption, and it's not going to happen all at once. And it's going to happen in some sort of sequence. And we have these various milestones that each follow each other. Now, confusingly, I found sources that present a different order. The Zohar tells us that the building of Jerusalem will precede the ingathering of the exiles, which comes first, 
apparently there's a dispute. Other sources tell us that first Messiah will come, and only then the ingathering of the exiles will happen. So which is it? I don't know. But there is some sort of sequence of the arrival of Messiah. And again, we have to remember, there are things that are above us, beyond us. The Talmud of the Book of Sachem, page 54b, tells us there are seven things that are concealed from humanity. No one knows when they're going to die, says the Talmud. No one knows the day of consolation. No one knows the depth of judgment. No one knows what's in the heart of their fellow. No one knows in what way they will become sustained. No one knows when the kingdom of David will be restored. And no one knows when the guilty kingdom will be eliminated. This is all hidden from us. We don't know. And we see, our sages tell us that there's going to be a sequence of events. And the Talmud tells us this is going to lead to that and that's going to lead to that. And there's a whole process. Yet we see other sources that talk about a different process. What's true? Which one will actually come first? We don't know. But hopefully we are a little bit less ignorant about these subjects than we were before. And I think that the reconciliation of the contradiction between the speed of the arrival of Messiah, whether it happens instantly or it happens through some slow and gradual process, I think that's a very valuable takeaway because this gives us more of an insight into how Messiah will appear and the sequencing of Messiah and potentially a way in which it can all unfold. Now, there are other elements that have to fit into this timeline that we have not even addressed at all. For example, Messiah ben David versus Messiah ben Joseph. Two types of Messiah. What's that all about? The sources talk about the resurrection of the dead. There's going to be an element of that in the times of Messiah. What about the ten lost tribes? Are they coming back? Do they fit into this ingathering of the exiles? The apocalyptic war of Gog and Magog. What's that? Where will that fit in? How does it all fit into the sequence and timeline? Who knows? There is a lot more to discuss. We briefly talked about the idea of the birth pains of Messiah, that the process of the revelation of the Messiah is akin to a labor and delivery. Hopefully we'll talk more about that soon. Throughout the whole series, we've been talking about the idea of messianic prognostication and why it's a terrible idea and why it's not something that we do. And we're going to address that hopefully very comprehensively. We're going to talk about the idea of false messiahs and the history of the false messiahs, what we can do to hasten messiah, what's the imperative of anticipating messiah, how do we identify King Messiah when he does actually show up here. There's a lot more, please God, to discuss. I'm looking forward to doing that hopefully soon. I look forward to your questions, your comments, and your feedback. And as always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. You can always find links in all of my podcasts to my email address. 
Sometimes people complain. They don't know what my email address is. It's rabbiwolbf.com. I thank you for your time and look forward to your questions, your comments, and your feedback.